Hello everyone and welcome to AWARE. We are Paula and Lisa, two students of the Bachelor of Global Sustainability Science at Utrecht University. In this podcast, composed of five episodes, we will have several guests and discuss fast fashion and its possible solutions from many different perspectives. From the history of fast fashion to the latest and most innovative solutions, we will have a journey to explore slow fashion, ethical consumption and circularity in the fashion industry. This will go hand in hand with inspiring discussions with experts and entrepreneurs that have first-hand experience in the industry. We are here to start a discussion about a topic that touches upon all of us. You wake up in the morning, you open your closet and you choose something to wear. Either it is a suit, a uniform, a pair of jeans or a fancy dress, it has impacted the world more than you expected. Are you ready to know more about it? Then stay connected with our podcast to find out. Welcome to the second episode of the Aware podcast series. In the first episode of this podcast series, we introduced the problem of fast fashion. But how did we end up in this situation? When did this problem become a real issue? In this episode, we will discuss how the fashion industry has become one of the biggest mass-producing industries nowadays, and we will be accompanied by a very special guest. But first, let's go back to the beginnings of the industry. Fashion started in the prehistoric epoch, when humans began wearing clothes made out of plants and animals to protect themselves or to camouflage. The use then was merely practical, and it was not until the ancient era when the trading of expensive textiles began that clothes started to determine a social status. With time, clothes became more sophisticated, but the office of dressmakers remained to be a one-person job. The industry then was not about creating a product that the consumer would buy, but rather working together with the client to create unique pieces. It was in the 18th century, with the Industrial Revolution, that the fashion industry shifted from being a one-person job to what is called a factory system. The invention of the sewing machine was what allowed the faster production of clothing. In the mid-19th century, a key distinction was made between hot couture and ready-to-wear. The first large fashion business appeared employing tailors and dressmakers. There was a remarkable shift. Now it was the company which dictated what the customer had to wear. An example of how fashion determined social status was when Napoleon III determined that he would only receive visitors in formal dresses in 1853. However, during this time, there was also a shift from the factory system to the sweat system, which made a distinction in the clothing production. In 1850, the concept of sweatshops emerged when in order to cut down cost of production, workers would have poor or illegal working conditions and were highly underpaid. Early sweatshops were located in London and New York. Sweatshops allowed a faster and cheaper production of clothing to make them affordable to the average consumer. In the 20th century, Paris and London became the epicenters of high fashion, and designers and editors traveled there to study and to some extent copy, the garments presented at fashion shows. The trends shown at Paris were adapted and brought to department stores, attracting the average consumer. With labor laws in the West becoming stricter, sweatshops were mainly located in the developing world due to their lack of effective workplace safety or environmental laws. 
Since the 1990s, as the researcher Leslie Simpson states in her paper Exploration of the Perpetuating Fast Fashion Consumption Cycle, the fashion industry has seen a rapid transformation due to technological advances that allowed globalization of supply chain for companies and for consumers and instant access to the latest fashion trends from around the world through online sources. Internet and social media have revolutionized the way we consume, now more and faster than ever. In the past 15 years, clothing production has doubled and the number of times we wear each piece of clothing is significantly decreasing. And according to the World Bank, each year we are more than proportionally increasing the amount of money we spend on the fashion industry. US shops are now the common manufacturer of multinational fashion companies and costs are being cut down more and more, leaving workers with precarious working conditions. And with more clothes being produced, there is also more clothes going to waste and more environmental impacts associated with it. This situation does not fall far from the Netherlands, where the industry has an annual surplus of 21.5 million items of unsold clothing. Garments are generally produced in sweatshops and have an average carbon footprint of 20 kilograms, which sets a step back in the country's effort to meet the emissions targets. Today we invited Carla Holgers to talk with us about fashion through time. Carla has more than 25 years of experience in the sector and she has a master's degree in history of art and classical archaeology. She currently is a senior lecturer in history of art and fashion at the Amsterdam Fashion Institute and she works as a guide in the Netherlands, Belgium and Germany. We are really happy to have you here, Carla. Uh, first of all, how are you doing today? I'm fine, yeah, I'm quite happy. Good weather and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I came on the bicycle. So yeah, nice to go to cycle through Utrecht. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's just dive in into the questions. How do you think that in the future people will describe fashion in our decade? Well, I hope, I have of course a dream, I have hopes, um, high hopes that people will talk about, yeah, uh, this decade, let's say uh, 2020 to 2030 as a period of big changes. And of course we experience, we are still experiencing the pandemic and um, that can be a sort of yeah, boundary between what was before and what will be. And yeah, it's my dream that it will be better, uh, change for the better. And that in later decades, they will look at um, the 20s of the 21st century as roaring, but a different kind of roaring 20s as, let's say, the roaring 20s of the last century. Going back to the past, uh, in terms of sustainability, do you think the fashion market in the Netherlands has evolved in the past decades? Yeah, I truly believe that there is a um, development. Um, yeah, when people were really talking about um, sustainable development and sustainability, then we have to go back to the 1980s. And as a teenager, I was part of the punk movement. I was a singer in a band. 
And so we also had ideas about, well, we were not calling it um, sustainability, but we were quite angry. And that also had to do with, um, yeah, um, social problems, um, uh, huge unemployment, um, also the reports of the Club of Rome. I remember we were participating in all kinds of demonstrations against a nuclear energy and so on. So, of course, there were always people involved in sustainability. And I can also remember, um, I'm that old, um, the reactions of my parents. Uh, for example, my mother, born before the Second World War, she was not so happy with us dressing up in what we then were calling secondhand garments. She thought it was dirty. And she said, we had to. And you do it because you love to do it. And we didn't like it. Same with doing all kinds of weird things with our hair. Like she said, we had to... Um, cut our hair or our parents did it for us or other people because of hygienic reasons and other reasons and you do it as a sort of yeah fashion statement mm -hmm. um, but in the 1980s I remember that there were also what we now call brands um, that were um, promoting themselves as being sustainable and um, I remember, for example, Esprit. I don't know if the brand is still existing. Patagonia. Yeah. Um, but in the 1980s, it was, and in the 70s, it was something which had a different value than nowadays. And I must say, in fashion education in the 90s, it became an issue. I remember going to a symposium in Arnhem organized by... Um, my former director, Tina Loud, and um, but then it was only small. And in the school where I am now a lecturer, I'm doing that already for a long time, since the 1980s, um, it is really a key element in our education sustainability. Although I sometimes also have my own critical point of view. I remember that they um, wrote down on the wall um, our Amphi, um, yeah, I call it credo, um, and it starts, it still starts with fashion is a force for good. And I thought, well, is this really wise to put that sort of words on the wall? Because, um, yeah, being raised up in the 1960s and 70s, um, I really had my doubts. And that was also speaking out of the reports of the Club of Rome. Um, well, we were maybe um, a bit, yeah, doom thinkers. And recently, I must say that I, I, I personally believe if we yeah, really are focusing on sustainability, but then in the broadest sense of the word, there can be a little bit of a, a, sprinkle, a sparkle of hope for the future for yeah, us human beings. Yeah, that's really nice.
And um, going maybe back to fashion history, yeah. Um, I would like to ask you, what would you say were the key events that drove the industrialization of fashion? Also a difficult question, <laughs> but um, basically, um, yeah, people were always, I think, pretty lazy, and they wanted to make their life and the work they were doing easier. So uh, people were always inventing tools and machines uh, to make dull work, and especially in the um, at a cloth industry, um, working with cloth eh, to make from a product uh, textile. That's a very, um, yeah, work-consuming, uh, energy-consuming uh, industry. So to make it more doable, uh, that led to industrialization, especially in the textile industry. Um, it went fast. Uh, after the invention of the knitting machine and other machines for producing um, yeah, textile. And then in the 19th century, you see also all kinds of systems, all kinds of yeah, um, ways to produce yeah, real mass-produced garments. Um, yeah, then it went faster. So then uh, do you think that uh this like industrialization grew more uh, out of the people wanted to make their jobs easier or the owners of the industries wanted to make the process faster and produce more? Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I think also when people, um, yeah, in a way, um, were the owners of the machines, um, they were also, in a way, the owners of the labor, of the people who were doing the labor. And um, in the textile and in the fashion industry, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I entered fashion ed education as an art historian without a lot of knowledge about fashion history. And I was quite surprised because in the 1980s, um, yeah, forecasting was a big thing. Many of my students, they, uh, yeah, they, they came to work in that kind of business. And I never believed anything uh, out of that um, yeah, fashion forecasting. I thought, yeah, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy for the fashion industry. And when I researched it, um, it is a tool in a way to promote something, and it came also out of the yeah 19th century to promote certain colors, mm -hmm. uh, to could promote you, certain fabrics. Yeah, could you maybe explain to the audience that may not know what forecasting is? Uh, so, please explain it. Um, well, you have specialized agencies um, everywhere in the world. Basically, nowadays, they, it is, of course, done uh, through the internet. So um, people are working for these agencies. They uh, collect data and images. And in a way, every season they come up with what will be the colors, what will be the shape, what will be the material. Yeah, what will it be in the fashion world? And yeah, lots of um, companies are following that. 
So in a way, you can say that the fashion industry is um, yeah, dictating what will be fashionable. And um, the consumer doesn't have much to say. So that's why I was talking about, yeah, it is basically a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy because also that uh, branding and marketing and forecasting is a, is a way to dominate. And um, of course, you can uh, come up with your own anti-fashion ideas and there are also independent uh, fashion uh, yeah, designers or fashion companies. You can, of course, work with your own yeah, sewing machine at home. Um, I did that too, and I still do it, although basically repairing things. Um, but yeah, on an industrial scale, it is yeah very much yeah pushed into a certain um, yeah. How do I say that correctly? In a sort of mold. Yeah, yeah. And um, continuing about consumers, dress shopping used to be a rare event, an occasion that happened a few times a year when the season changed or when we grew out of our clothes. But around 20 years ago, something changed and clothing got cheaper, trend cycles sped up, and shopping became a leisure activity that became more accessible to everyone. Do you think this trend will continue or are we maybe close to a tipping point that will change the current situation? Yeah, well, uh, then again, I am, um, how you say that, balancing between my hope, my dream and reality. Because like I said, during the Italian yeah, fashion shows, of course, people were interviewed and yeah, uh, the head of the Chamber of Commerce, of course, um, is very happy that there are live uh, catwalk shows again uh, because it's pushing the economy in Italy and in in Italy yeah uh, fashion is I think uh, the second industry there maybe after tourism uh, also tourism was uh, completely uh, yeah it stopped many people were very happy like uh, yeah uh, hotel Europe for a while was closed and Venice was empty. Um, but yeah, you see now that, yeah, the things are opening up again. Um, I think there is such an uh, eagerness in people to consume. It gives them also, I think, a certain yeah, purpose. And I don't want to be a sort of preacher, but um, I was sometimes also longing for, um, yeah, for, for, for what I was used to. And um, so, yeah, it's very hard. I mean, um, I find it difficult to say something about it. Uh, my hope is that it will change and that people will focus more on what I call good fashion. Uh, and that they use fashion really as, um, yeah, a source and a goal for good. But I have my worries. <laughs> um, 
And then maybe continuing with this like uh, reality versus hope uh, yeah. situation, uh, like, do you see a place in the future for local fashion businesses or will multinationals uh, continue to take over the industry? Well, there is, um, when I speak to young people especially, um, there's such a, uh, optimism. And I, I shouldn't talk too much from my own experiences and my own point of view, because after all, I'm an elderly person. And when I was talking about what I read about the Italian Fashion Week, there were also designers like Armani of 86, very old man. Uh, but in a way, also, he says, yeah, it has to slow down and we have to focus more on quality. And, um, yeah, when I talk as an um, art historian, then I think there should be more awareness for, let's say, material. Um, maybe also the art of seeing and experiencing. Um, there should be more emphasis on that. Like many people have no awareness of the material they are wearing. Um, and I think if you're only buying and not doing any research and, and you have no knowledge and, and people are not giving you any yeah, knowledge or content, yeah, then it's hard to make uh, a, yeah, a proper decision. Yeah, that's true. We are for sure disconnecting. So I, yeah, I think also in fashion education, things have to change. And yeah, there has to be more focus on content. And for a long time, when I speak from my own experiences, it was almost a, a crime if you are, were emphasizing knowledge. And I think it's very important to have knowledge again. Um, I always say to my students, well, the key issues are color, but there are so many colors. So you also have to be very specific. And especially in textile, you can experience color in such a wonderful way. And then material. And a lot of my uh, students, and sometimes I also have difficulties with it because you have to touch it, you have to do all kinds of um, yeah, uh, research um, procedures to find out what kind of material is it and what can you do with it? What is the best way to work with it? So you also have to focus on the technique. And during the pandemic, uh, there was also a lot of um, yeah, interest in, in digital fashion. Maybe that can also help um, to reduce real physical fashion. Um, although I hope it is not digital and physical, that it's not uh, an extra. Yeah then it should replace. Although I agree maybe also with Armani that um, you can't um, replace a tactile or a physical experience. And so when you're really talking about a material culture, it's very hard. Mm -hmm. But maybe we have to learn uh, to be more ethical and to be more modest and um, to think instead of me, uh, yeah, in we, I think that's also important. Yeah, I think I agree.
You you mentioned already some global challenges that we are facing right now, and you also said before that uh, probably people in the future will think about this decade as a period of change. Yeah. So maybe we can learn something from history in regard to that. Do you think that uh, fashion trends are influenced by global challenges? For example, at the moment, many companies are trying to make their production processes more sustainable. Uh, was this also the case uh, in the past with other societal problems? Absolutely. Um, fashion is always a reflection of its time. And um, you see it also with emancipation of women. But um, maybe I don't have a lot of patience. Uh, also with that, I always felt that it was not going fast enough. And of course, um, history is going in, yeah, how you say that, in different ways. It's a fascinating process. And um, maybe it's also arrogant to look at, at the history only from your own point of view. You have to uh, yeah, create an awareness also for other people's um, interpretations of fashion history and where it led, yeah, where it led to. But yeah, for me, history is always a way to make me more um, aware, more uh, awake to face the problems that I experience in, in, yeah, in my life, in, in, in yeah, what I read, what I, what I experience all around me. Um, so maybe this actually leads us to the next question, which is uh, how do you think uh, fashion studies and yeah. our understanding of fashion has uh, changed in the last century? Well, when I entered fashion education, I saw myself um, as a, a graduate in art history and archaeology, classical archaeology. And when we were talking about uh, garments, it was basically to date somebody in a painting um, it was a part of um, iconology uh, so then it was a way to describe a part of a certain culture but it was not seen as something serious um, and I had the same prejudice because um, my main specialization was history of architecture I thought, well, that has status, huh? that is a serious thing. And I remember after I graduated, I did research in the Bauhaus, in the archive in Berlin. It was uh, research about um, female Bauhäusler, so students, um, yeah, female students. And I discovered, which was back then for me, quite a shock, but I was also happy being a feminist to find something very interesting that the director or the board of directors, the management team, they created um, a special department for the women because there were too many female students at the Bauhaus. And um, the director, Walter Gropius, for me then a uh, much admired architect, um, he thought it would be uh, it would mean a degrada degradation and would degrade his um, his school. So um, he was making this special department so that they won't go to all the other departments. 
And so he thought that should be textile department. And so, yeah, textile, garments, fashion. I also saw it back then as something which didn't have a lot of state status. So I was eager to, to make some money and to have a job. So I accepted. And then through the years, of course, when you dive into a certain subject, it becomes more and more interesting and you find out so many. And it's not less or it is not, um, yeah, it is the same. It's the same as, as architecture, uh, the same but different, but it's not less. Uh, but in the 1980s, I think in general, there was this, um, yeah, this attitude of looking down at people who were busy with fashion. And by the way, most of the people who were busy with fashion, fashion history, um, they were females. Um, um, I thought as a female, um, it's a degradation of myself as a serious art historian um, to work in the fashion education. And that slowly changed because I experienced that it was very interesting that when you make it, when you connect it to all these different uh, things, uh, like what also developed in art history, uh, you connect it with the economical history, you connect it with political history, social history, um, then it is as interesting. But I was also a victim of, um, yeah, how you say that, um, prejudice. But um, many, many, yeah, high value studies have been published since the 1980s in most colleges and most universities. It's a serious subject nowadays, but back then it wasn't, no. And um, yeah, in my own school, I must say that, um, yeah, it is, of course, an important uh, topic, although um, real history is not, um, it doesn't have most attention. So, yeah, fashion studies is such a broad, um, yeah, uh, field of research. Um, but, for example, for me, it would be very interesting um, to study more prehistorical mm -hmm. or early civilizations or medieval fashion, not only as a source of inspiration for the design students, but also to learn uh, as a sort of, yeah, um, a f yeah, an, 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 a part of fashion study uh, we can learn from that because then, of mm -hmm. course, also um, the production of garments was totally different. Although I think in, in general that we will be amazed. I'm also very happy with the technical revolution, mm -hmm. how time consuming it is to, to make from a certain material garment. I don't know if you have any experience, for example, with knitting uh, socks or knitting uh, gloves or uh, a sweater. Yeah, it takes quite a while. It's much easier to buy it in, in the shop. And I come from a family, like it's only one generation back. Um, 
that, yeah, uh, my family was making uh, garments and they were swapping it. Um, and I'm, yeah, I think my mother, she was, yeah, at the break, break point. So she was the changer, the change maker, because she said, I don't want to do that anymore. So she didn't want to work with her sewing machine at home. And she said, it's much easier to go to a shop in the city. Bye. Exactly. So, so I think there is nowadays a lot of joy amongst people to create things. On the other hand, I think the whole technical revolution, in a way, it's also great. And yeah, I don't believe in one without the other. You were telling us before a story about uh, you um, thrift shopping and buying secondhand clothes and the response of your parents. And we can see that it's also happening right now because thrift shopping became almost like a cult trend with a lot of even influencers that each new hint collection for vintage pieces that they find in local charity shops. But at the same time, thrift shopping came under scrutiny in recent years because it's driving up prices in charity shops and creating a scarcity of good items in secondhand shops. Um, this rise in popularity is depriving underprivileged locals from buying affordable garments. And the argument is that for part of society, thrift shopping is not, is not a hobby, but a necessity. So what do you think about this point of view? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, yeah, uh, thing you brought up, uh, thrift shopping. I really had to look it up because for me, it's not uh, a common yeah, word, thrift shopping. Um, when I was young, we were calling it just second hands. And like I said, in the eyes of uh, the former generation, uh, they couldn't really understand it. New was better. But when you bought something new, then you also had to be, um, yeah, good for the garment. So my parents were buying high quality garments and they didn't have a lot in their closet. Uh, but what they had, they were cherish cherishing. So I remember my father, he had uh, garments that he was using for work. And we thought it was beautiful. My father was a carpenter. So he had real, yeah, workman gear. And my mother, too, she also had special gear for doing, um, yeah, her, the household, for example. But yes, they were uh, typical products of their generation. My mother became a full-time mother and housewife. Nowadays, I don't think people exist <laughs> who can call. Yeah, I don't know about um, people who were yeah, uh, seeing themselves as mother and housewife. But my mother, she took great pride in it. So she had a special cupboard um, linen cast, the linen cast that was really um, completely organized, um, well ironed, and she even had like sheets for on the bed with special embroidery. Um, so everything had to be in perfect condition, and I still cherish aprons that they also my father was using that when he was cooking special aprons for in the kitchen. 
in a way, I was rebellious, of course. I think lots of generations, they want to re rebel against what was before, and I was like that as well. On the other hand, uh, yeah, when you get older, you also have a sort of double, uh, yeah, double vision. Uh, so you, you think, well, in a way, it was not so bad. And you compare it with other uh, with others and their situation. Um, but yeah, thrift shopping. Um, I mean, if you go to certain uh, places, charity shops, um, it is such, that is also such um, a market. It is, um, it's so, um, well, it changed a lot. I mean, in the past, it was really for charity. And now it seems to be a sort of business. And yeah, I find it very difficult. And there's also this idea of vintage. Um, well, I don't easily call something vintage. It has to be of a certain quality and, and, and a certain, um, yeah, it has to have a certain value. But the recycling of second or third or fourth hand garments. Well, it's something that was part of the fashion history already for a long time. Um, but yeah, in the, the wealthy world uh, here in the West, it became a cult thing. And on the other hand, I think for a lot of, yeah, it is a sort of um, circular yeah, process. Maybe it will end. I don't know. Maybe we will all go for first-hand, um, circular, sustainable garments. I don't know. Could be an option too. Yeah, <laughs> if if um, the producers of fashion have, um, if they are forced to take the responsibility of recycling their own, uh, yeah, garments, we think will change. And. We are coming now to the end. So as our last question, we would like to ask you, um, and although you have already said a lot of things about this, um, what can we learn from the history of fashion that we can apply in our life? Um, yeah, what, what I personally think is it is good to make more conscious choices, to be more aware of what you buy. I also try to do that. Uh, and of course, during the pandemic, I couldn't buy anything. Uh, then, of course, you can say, yeah, but you can buy through the Internet and then a, a package is uh, sent to your home address. I saw that a lot in my corridor. And then I was looking at the labels and I thought, oh, my goodness, the neighbors are buying H&M again and, and all these, yeah, fast fashion brands. But... I don't want to be a preacher, but yeah, we didn't buy anything. I mean, uh, I, I can also be honest, I have a lot of garments in my uh, closet and I think I have enough until I die, if I take good care of it. And that is maybe what we can learn from fashion history in the past, of course, like my mother. She was a full-time housewife, but she also knew how to do it. Uh, so in her eyes, uh, garments were expensive. 
So uh, you had to take good care of it. Uh, she knew also where it came from because her mother, she also she made clothes. She didn't went to a shop, so she made it. So my mother was brought up in a situation with a mother who were making, who was making everything for the children, for herself, also for others. She was repairing things. So if you know the process, I think you are also more aware of it. And um, well, I was not raised up in a very luxurious situation. But also, like, workwear can be very beautiful. And if you take good care of it, you uh, can, it can last yeah, for, 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 for ages. Yeah, and, and maybe that is a challenge to make something that can last for a long time. Also, when you, you look at real beautiful historical pieces from collections, like I said before I came here, I went to the museum. Um, there you can see things sometimes that are from the past, from, let's say, the 16th, 17th, 18th century. Of course, uh, mainly garments that were made for rich people. Um, but, yeah, people took good care of it. They were not all the time putting it in washing machines or they were not uh, treating the material in a wrong way. Um, yeah, maybe we have to learn again how to yeah, appreciate good, uh, yeah, good material, good garments. And, and maybe that is the language we have to... Yeah, add to fashion. Yeah, when you look at somebody, then you don't look at how brand new something is or how, how it is um, expressing the language of somebody else, a brand, but more um, the expression of how decent you are and how, um, yeah how you take care of, yeah, a sort of second skin you are wearing. Mm -hmm. They're really great advices. <laughs> yes, thank you. Well, I hope so. Like I said before, I thought the questions uh, were quite difficult. They were, yeah. But it's good to be aware uh, of things and to, yeah, to, to, to try to formulate answers. Yeah, and hopefully this raises even more questions. It's uh, always good to... Uh, have a critical view on everything that you say and everything that you listen, of course. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> thank you for joining us. Yes. In this episode, we talked about fashion in the past and in the present. We discovered how the history of fashion can help us understand new ways of seeing fashion and the fashion industry. The relationship with our clothes changed a lot over the course of history, and it will probably change more in the future. We are in a key moment to redefine fashion, and write the history of fashion industry in the new 20s. The direction that we choose now is what will determine the future of fashion. How will people in the future talk about fashion in this decade? We must make sure that sustainability is included in the discussion and consider for a fair future of fashion.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Aware. Keep tuned for next week's episode about slow fashion. If you're new to our podcast, make sure to check out our previous episode. And feel free to follow our Instagram page at Aware Podcast. See you next time. Thank you.